0: Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome. My name is Kimberly Flowers. I direct our food security work here at CSIS and I just want to say thank you all for coming. Thank you for those who are here in person and also thanks to those who watch us on our live webcast. We're really lucky to have a pretty active audience that watches um, from their desk or elsewhere in the world. I have just say that these smaller events that we do with authors, um, I really like. They're some of my favorite things about this job, and it's because we're able to dive deep on a topic with an expert, um, I would say in this case with two experts, since our event today will be led by Emmy Simmons, who's a senior advisor to our program here, and I'm oh, sure best. you already know the book yes. is The Political History of American Food Aid by Barry Riley, who has an incredibly impressive, long, interesting career, once you look at his bio. um, I would love to just pick his brain for several hours, but we do at least have an hour and a half to pick his brain on one topic, which I personally am very excited to learn from him today. Um, Although this is more of a historical look back, um, as anyone knows in DC right now, people are already ramping up talk on food aid because of the farm bill reauthorization next year and that always ignites new and also old (laughs) conversations around food aid reform and and people have very strong opinions on food aid. Um, I can certainly say from my own experience living in Ethiopia for three years, seeing firsthand the importance of food aid, but also having worked um, after that time, so specifically in agriculture, understanding some better connections between our humanitarian and our long-term development assistance. So, Emmy and Barry, the stage is yours. Thank you. Thank
1: you.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Oh. Sit on
2: this side. I'm going to sit on this side, because it'll be oh, easier okay. for me Wherever.
0: to. Uh,
2: <laughs> It would be e- easier for me to do it. You notice that I brought my book along, and Barry didn't have to because he remembers every bit of it. So this is good.
1: Well, most of it.
2: <laughs> now, thank you, Kimberly, for the introduction. And thanks to um, CSAS for arranging for this room. I think this is just an exciting book. And it's just fortunate that Barry was, a- was traveling to Washington to participate in a foreign service, American Foreign Service Association book fair this morning, at which he didn't actually get to speak. So this afternoon is really his chance to share with us his thinking and his experience and his expertise and his, his reflections on, on food, US American food assistance. As I think all of us know, the United States is, is really the major source of international food assistance and has been for more than a century. Between 1918 and 1920, a period which is just 100 years ago, American farmers and shippers delivered millions of tons of food to countries in Europe that were devastated by the fighting of World War I. I, I happen to have been working this last year on a history of Wilson. Oh boy! So um, the whole era of the end of World War I, Wilson's efforts to set up the League of Nations, And the whole initiative to sort of recreate peace in Europe was part of that effort. Um, The food aid that was delivered in Europe saved millions of lives and enabled Europe's post-conflict leaders to rebuild their broken economies. What's interesting is that this story was repeated in Europe after World War II, just, what, 40 years later. And it continues to be told in many countries around the world today. If anyone is looking at, um, Nigeria and Northeast Nigeria, and considering the, ish, the ravaging of the agriculture sector and the food sector in Northeast Nigeria, you know that, as Kimberly has pointed out, to avert that famine, the United States is engaging with food assistance, other humanitarian assistance to make that happen. And I would suspect that many of us in the room, I see a few faces around here who are old USAID faces, we're vaguely aware of the history of food aid. And as I said, I was focusing on on the Wilson era, but many of us know very few of the real details of the political economy, how those choices are made. And as Kimberly said, the 2018 Farm Bill is going to raise a number of these issues. They've already come up in my email. Should we provide commodities, should we provide vouchers, should we provide cash assistance? And so I think that part of the Farm Bill discussion is going to move into high gear in the next three to five months, and we're all going to be hearing a lot about what is the appropriate role for the U.S. to play in provision of food aid. But I also think that the Global Food Security Act of 2016 is going to be reauthorized or is going to be up for reauthorization by July of next year. And that's going to be another opportunity because the Global Food Security Act takes a very different approach to American provision of food assistance than does the Farm Bill. So I think it's going to be especially important in the next few months for us to understand how the politics and realities of American food aid really have evolved over the years, and how we can avoid making some of the same... the same poor decisions or the same delayed decisions that really mark the history over the last century. And Barry Riley, a former colleague at USAID, um, is with us today, as I said, for the AFSA book fair, but we've taken advantage of his presence in town to, to get him to participate in a conference yesterday at George Mason and here today at the CSIS. Barry's worked over the past six years as a visiting scholar at Stanford University, which I think is pretty impressive for an old aid guy. Good
1: place to be. Uh huh.
2: But he provides us with a narrative account of U.S. engagement in international food aid that depicts, in what I would call, highly engaging detail. This is a really, really thick book, and you almost can read it like a novel. Almost. It's a little... It requires a bit more attention. But it gives a narrative of the twists and turns of policy, practice, and program impact that have marked the provision of U.S. food assistance over the last century or so. He actually takes it back two centuries, but anyhow, the last century. So the one thing that surprised and, and I would say delighted me, Barry, about the way you wrote the book was how you've been able to make history really come alive. In my work on, on working on this project for Wilson, I actually read a lot of stuff that was really dry. <laughs> yes.
1: This bo- so did I. <laughs> oh my God!
2: I know, I know. And he talks about it, and we can ask questions. He used because he was at Stanford, he was able to access presidential libraries and archival records to recount numerous conversations and meetings relevant to the story. Using, and you'll find when you read the book, long quotes of conversations, of memos written by assistants, written you know, written records of meetings that were held in the White House, in the State Department, and in other places. Um, I, could, I could sort of give my, my top three. I really like the Go. Lyndon Johnson short tether story regarding food aid in India. Watch for it. He has another story about the mental and spiritual and moral transformation of Henry Kissinger with regard to his views of <laughs> on global <laughs> hunger as he moved from the White House to the State Department. I, I just thought it was dynamite. And perhaps we'll. we'll he, I'm sure he'll start with this, the engagement of Herbert Hoover after World War I, or during and, and slightly after World War I, in providing food assistance to war-ravaged Europe. It's just an amazing story. And Herbert Hoover gives hope to all of us old retired folks, because Herbert Hoover, in fact, stayed engaged in food aid issues until the 1950s beyond beyond 60s too anyway I the story of you know uh, a person that many of us think in, uh, is not a very effective president when you read the story of Herbert Hoover's engagement in food aid you realize the importance of the man and public service in terms of providing leadership on food So we appreciate your being here, and I'm going to... Well, thank you. I'm happy to be here. I'm going to throw a few questions at you, and the first one is the obvious one. What made you decide to write this book and to keep at it for six years?
1: Well, the honest truth is that I didn't decide to write this book. I had started to write another book, which was kind of the distillation of 15 years of consulting after I left Washington, For the World Food Program, numerous times, maybe 14 times, and World Bank, and a lot of NGOs, and a lot of consulting firms. And I had all this accumulated actual on-the-ground viewpoints of what I had seen working in food security-focused projects, many of them having food aid components. And I was at variance with what the literature was saying, and I wanted to write up why I felt a little bit differently. And that's how I started. And I thought, well, OK, the first chapter or two, we've got to do a little bit of the history, right? Go back to 1812. Some people know that that was our first real food aid to Venezuela in an earthquake. To talk a little bit about how badly we did in the Irish potato famine, that's all I knew. And I knew that Hoover had somehow been engaged with Belgium. That was the totality of my understanding of the history of food aid. So I, I set about to kind of find the, the beginning. And the beginning is in 1894, in a debate in Congress, uh, try, whether 17. or not-
2: 17.
1: 17. I'm sorry. Catch me if I do that. 1794, in which one of the drafters of the Constitution, wanting to respond to a request for help for French refugees, said, well, I'd very much like to do it, but my, our Constitution doesn't permit that. It doesn't provide Congress the authority to spend the federal government's budget for the benefit of foreign people, sorry. And the others, uh, in this was in the House of Representatives. He was, a, before he became president, was a, a member of the House. And the others took it to committee and stewed over it for three weeks and brought it back to the floor for a final vote, and they overruled him. The guy, the major writer of the Constitution, saying, look, it's not their guys. And they basically said, Yeah, we know it's not the Constitution, but is it going to be the theme of our international relations that we can't contribute for humanitarian reasons when foreigners are in distress? Is this to be the nature of our new country? And so they disagreed and voted, I think it was $10,000 to be provided to the... Uh, the mayor and others in, Boston, uh, to, in in Baltimore to reimburse them for the cost of uh, these French refugees. Well, that was one of only two times over the next 100 years, all the way up to 1917, where U.S. food aid dollars, food dollars were used, U.S. dollars, were used directly for food aid programs. The, uh, Madison's argument won the case every time it was raised in Congress as to whether we were going to help for a drought in the Canary Islands, uh, revolution in Turkey, revolution in Greece, all of these things, We've always voted down. So that became so interesting to me as a historian. I said, well, I've got to cover that. And then I got to the Irish potato famine. And we didn't do uh, the federal government provided the services of two sailing ships, old ones, to provide a little bit of grain from the private sector when there were something in the neighborhood of six million Irish starving to death, many of whom had already starved to death. And we loaded two ships with barrels of flour. And that was, gonna, that was our response. And that was an interesting response to me. And, and I'm bringing this forward, looking at lots of little things going along. And I finally come up to World War I. The outbreak of World War I, the invasion of Belgium and Holland and France by the Germans. Belgium was suddenly without any ability to feed itself. The Germans confiscated what they had in country. Belgium in those days was the kind of workshop of Europe. Uh, Its farmers only provided about a quarter of the food necessary for Belgium, so they were about to starve to death. And a delegation from, from Belgium came to London asked the U.S. ambassador in London for help from the United States, presumably help with the British, and the ambassador turned to this young 40-year-old mining engineer who had spent most of his life outside the United States by the name of Herbert Hoover, to, could you kind of take over this job of trying to get some shiploads of food to Belgium? And then when you get into what Hoover did, how he organized that, how he browbeat his fellow businessmen, how he came up with an amazing propaganda division to begin letters and, uh, to friends in the United States to get their communities to begin contributing, all private contributions. It is one amazing story, and it's not well-known. It's hardly known at all that, in fact, that uh, his work in the early days of Belgium Relief Makes him, in my mind, the father of American food aid. And those, n- not many people realize that. People who know food aid tend to carry it back to the, to the um, uh, 1954 uh, passage of a food aid back, PL 480. And in fact, we had major food aid going to Europe after World War I, to a famine in Russia in the 20s, famine in China in the 30s. All kinds of things are going on with food aid levels that almost dwarf what we're doing now. But nobody knows about it. Nobody knows why we did it, what Congress is thinking, what the arguments were. Turns out they're very similar to the arguments that we have today and how they were resolved and why. And I figured, oh, it's, I've got to change this book. It's going to have to be a history <laughs> book after all. And that carries right through. right through. I think the last part of the book deals with the, with the most recent legislation. The, uh, the Food Security Act, the Global Food Security Act. So it became a history book.
2: Just like that. From a food aid professional to an historian.
1: Yeah, yeah. One giant leap. I, I missed my calling early in life. I, don't, how, I...
2: Once, once you get into the book and start reading it, you realize how rich this history is. I mean, I think Barry's already given, you've given us some taste of this. But how did you pick the specific stories to kind of pull out and go into depth. Yesterday at the conference at George Mason, you talked about the Bangladesh story and how the story of food assistance, lack of food assistance or food assistance to Bangladesh in the early 1970s was, was just a fascinating story of intrigue and political clash and starvation and, yeah. How did you pick these stories? Ethiopia is another story uh, that you Nixon. go into in some depth. Nixon. Nixon, Nixon and Kissinger, and a fascinating Kissinger. story. How, do you, how did you pick the stories well, I, to focus Well, I had on?
1: several to choose from, frankly. And in, in the, fir- the first uh, draft of this book was approximately twice as long as, as this one. And this one's nearly 600 pages. Because I could talk about Biafra, which was fascinating, and the way Nixon dealt with Biafra. Wow. But I had to take that out. I may do it as an article later. Um, there, there was fascinating aid to um, China before the communists came in, in which uh, various forms of aid, uh, food aid uh, monetization was introduced in the 30s. Who knows that? But at any rate, uh, Bangladesh just sticks out because at the time, in the 70s, Bangladesh had first had uh, a Major flood flooded a third of the country, followed months later by the worst cyclone in a hundred years. And this was the aftermath of their war of independence when West Pakistan, as you may know, um, attacked East Pakistan because in the previous election, East Pakistanis had in fact won the election. The, the, the Awami League in East Pakistan got more votes. Well, the military, which was kind of in control, the, well, they were all West Pakistanis. And they weren't about to let East Pakistan. So in a horrible situation, East Pakistan was attacked militarily by its own government in 1970, 71. And that battle, which caused millions of refugees to flow to poor uh, the Bengal region of India next door. And the Indian government was having trouble feeding its own population to have it. At, inundation of about 5 million very poor refugees. And what was continuing to go on in Bangladesh, well, that, what makes it all interesting is not so much that and interesting as it is. It's how the White House reacted. Nixon was engaged in secret diplomacy with China, and he was using Yahya Khan, the the uh, man in charge in Pakistan, as his go-between, because Khan Yahya was Uh, Both the Chinese and the American government trusted him. So how was Nixon going to respond when Yahya sends 20,000 troops to his own country and starts slaughtering the leadership and the students and the professors? That puts us in a very delicate situation. And we were trying to provide food aid to then East Pakistan through West Pakistan, because that was the government. And suddenly, well, how are we going to do that when they're at war with each other? All these things kind of came to a head there. And it was how Nixon and Kissinger responded, trying to protect their, their ties, their growing ties with China, in a way that didn't uh, offend Yahya Khan, the leader in West Pakistan. Makes for quite fascinating reading, I can assure you. And I had access to their conversations and their telephone calls, because that's all freely available now. And you can see the personalities of our president and his chief foreign policy advisor as they're trying to work through this problem. So that's what made Bangladesh an interesting story. And there was, in the following chapter, I I go into the drought, famine, which is what I talked about yesterday. And Bangladesh was one of the six areas in the country, six areas of the world, where there was major famine going on. The other areas, it was drought. In Bangladesh, it was flood and tornado and and, 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 uh, uh, military confrontation. So they were in very dire situation. And what made that interesting, and I didn't mention it yesterday, but you you guys may find it interesting, is that at no time was Pakistan short of food. uh, Was Bangladesh short of food in 1972. They had enough food. It was that it was being priced out of sight. And so many Bangladeshis are so poor, and because of the drought and the flood and the war, they had no employment. The floods did affect the their work they could do agriculturally. The cyclone kind of devastated uh, 400,000 head of animals, 3 million tons of food. Debit. So they were in dire shape just to get their hands on food in Bangladesh, not because it wasn't there. Uh, there's a wonderful book. I mentioned it yesterday by Elam Gere who did a survey to discover that on a per capita basis there was about as much food available in the country as there was before all of this happened. But it was being siphoned off by India. It was being hoarded by those waiting for even higher prices and the wealthy for fear that they might... And so, in fact, you had a true famine situation in Bangladesh. The rest of the world thought the problem was lack of food caused by the floods and the hurricane. It wasn't lack of food, it was lack of purchasing power. And it took Alan Gehrs' work, which Amartya Sen latched onto, and got a Nobel Prize out of the, with the his, his study of this, this problem. That's what makes that chapter fascinating to me.
2: Yeah. Yeah. No. It, w- again, if you, when you read the book, um, you'll find that he takes Barry takes the time, you take the time, yeah. to go kind of deeply into these stories, so that you can really understand that complexity of the interaction of the various factors. And I just I found about just about that Bangladesh story, because it involved President Nixon and then advisor, and then later Secretary of State Kissinger, is that you've used really, really long quotes from these phone conversations and from records of of White House meetings. And Nixon was very profane. I mean, there are a few dot, dot, dots, but he, in fact, leaves in a lot of the swear words. I
1: thought it was worth leaving them in, yeah.
2: (laughs) And but the, did, did you find that that, that, that was really an, a way to sort of make that story come alive, was to use these very long quotes?
1: Oh, absolutely. You have
2: a bunch of long quotes from There's Lyndon two ways Johnson. to handle that. Yeah. You
1: can paraphrase it to your heart's content, which makes it less interesting. Or you can use the quotes. Often you don't have the quotes available. But thanks to that White House telephone tapping system that they had, I could listen to their conversations, their voices talking to each other. Ah, Mr. President, those, forgive me, assholes, and... And, um... It's even more profane than that if you're... Talking. Sometimes. <laughs> but I'll say this about Kissinger, and i make the point later. I think he was just playing to his president. I'm not so sure that hes he felt that way himself. I think he was trying to manipulate Nixon into a, a more even-handed... And he finally did get, get Nixon around to the point that, okay, we do have to feed... And we haven't even talked about India yet, which is the most interesting part of this whole whole deal, but we don't have all We don't have that
2: much time. As a food aid professional, though, as you looked at these, given what you intended to write and then how you felt that you really had to get deeper into this history, what were the things that kind of learnings that jumped out at you, that things that you didn't or that you vaguely knew or you didn't know? And then as you made these discoveries in the historical record, really came forward to you as things that changed your mind, changed how you saw...
1: I added the word political to the title kind of late in the game because I realized that what I was really talking about is not what you normally see in writing about food aid, the economics of food aid, the disincentive effects, the cost, all of that that you can read about in innumerable studies. I was interested in how decisions were made, why did we send this much food here and not that much food there? The decisions are made sometimes in the White House. There's a section that I call the activist presidents, and I list them, where the White House was deeply involved for one reason or another, often involving external externalities like Vietnam. And there are other times when the decision was made in Congress. And what's fun about trying to figure out what Congress was up to with decisions on food aid Is the fact that we are all used to dealing with the foreign affairs, uh, interested parties in Congress, foreign relations, foreign affairs committees. Well, this is the Agriculture Committee, and we're not particularly knowledgeable here. Uh, Some of you may be more than me, actually, but uh, normally in the in the foreign affairs crowd, you don't get into USDA very much. Well, I did, and then it's a whole other interesting dimension. Some of these. Uh, the secretaries of agriculture that we dealt with, Benson and Butts, and a few others, are powerful—more powerful, frankly, than Secretary of State. Quite often, certainly with some presidents. And to see that—and Kissinger a good—Kissinger and Butts, Butts wanting to sell every bushel of food that we were that we were producing in the United States either to Americans, but if foreigners would pay more, we'll sell it to them instead. And he didn't want to use any of his USDA budget to give food away. At one point, I think it's in the book, he says, if Henry wants food for foreign aid, let him take it out of his budget, for crying out loud. So you have this kind of USDA mindset, and and Errol Butz is the epitome. And I, I write lovingly about that horrible man. I just I just <laughs> so enjoyed dealing with that. So. Um, I'm losing track of the original question here. But
2: your major learning, your major discoveries, My, you are sharing them. Yeah, OK. Political, that, the political slant, the, the, the power of the agricultural sector.
1: It hadn't been written about. Everybody that writes about food aid wants to do surveys on the ground. What's the impact? How, is it a disincentive to the local production? The cost of getting it there, those, those horrible shippers that are trying to add, all the barnacles that are attached. to. That's what most people who write about food aid write about. That's not what this is about. This is, when I was in AID, I remember doing budgets, as program officers did in those days. You send them up with PPC, they chew them up, and then it goes somewhere else, the OMB, and then eventually makes its way to where a decision is made, and you get about a quarter back if you're lucky. And, that's, and then what do we do with that quarter? That was kind of what we were interested in. Okay, now that we have our money, what... But I moved up the line to where those decisions were made, particularly as they involved Congress, because that's where the the true decisions are made. I think I say that in the Mm -hmm. preface. And therefore, I read, I can't tell you how many tens of thousands of pages of testimony in House hearings. Luckily, there is a website which you can access, at least through universities. Um, where it's very well organized, you can do searches on phrases during committee meetings, and you can kind of get at uh, the food aid-related discussion in various, and it's mostly in committees. I did very little on floor action, and in the reports that they produce. And there you begin to get an inkling of who's for what, and why, and who they represent, and, and who's talking to them from the the, uh, the, the food organizations in the country that, that buy food from farmers, that store it, that move it, and who ship it overseas. And it's that intersection of those interests as they make their pleas to Congress every time the, the Farm Bill comes up every four or five years that I found just so intriguing. And this book slips back and forth, as you may know. I I talk a bit about what's going on internationally, and then I have an interlude about the state of the American farmer. And the farmers after both wars, World War I and World War II, were in dire straits. They were still producing so much for the war effort. And suddenly, that demand was gone. It was gone after the wars because there was no effective demand out there, because these countries were recovering from war, had very little foreign exchange left. They couldn't buy the food. And there were millions upon millions of their countrymen who were so malnourished. I mean, it's like, it's like uh, South Sudan today. They were, they were even worse off than that in some cases. Those poor German kids after Germany was defeated in World War II were surviving on, what, 600, 700 calories a day of a mishmash of, of horse meat and some kind of grain. It was horrible. And. And Hoover comes back at that time, at the end of World War II. Truman invites him back to give him advice on what the heck we're supposed to do, at a time when the U.S. Congress didn't want to do anything, because and the U.S. public was saying we've had enough of, of uh, uh, lack rationing, of ability rationing, gardens. lack of ability. We last thing we want to do is to provide more food to Europe, especially to our former enemies. And you had Harry Truman who had a. Harry Truman's approval rating was less less than Trump's today, 32%. He had battles with the unions. He had battles with price controls. He had battles with everybody. And yet he was the one that had to go up to Congress, convince them and the American people that we weren't out of the war yet, that we still had to feed tens of millions of people, hundreds of millions of people, in fact, if you count Asia, for the next several years. And his struggle to do that. He would get part of, but not all that he needed, kind of preface the need for the Marshall Plan. Now, if you look at that history through a food aid lens or a use of food as a foreign policy tool lens, you see it quite differently. And I found it a much a very interesting way to look at that history.
2: Yeah, use of food as foreign policy, use of food as support for domestic policy, in terms of keeping the rural community and the farmers voting for you, in terms of of sort of international relations and what other people thought of the U.S., because the U.S. during World War II literally was keeping tens of millions, (laughs) hundreds of millions of people alive with the surplus from American farms. And then we get to the 1950s in PL 480, and one of the basic one of the basic titles which is still part of the farm bill debate has to do with the ability of USDA to sell food on credit to countries who need food, want food but couldn't afford it. And this was Eisenhower's big era. And he brought together that conflict recovery support for the support for the American farmer Figuring out that maybe we could use market development as kind of a cover for this to get more to get more funding for it, that to me you brought that story together.
1: Truman had a very narrow base in Congress the Republican control was was that thin, and he definitely didn't want to do anything that would prevent him from being reelected. when he ran for president, he promised two years of the continuation of support, I think through 53 or four. And then after that, it was going to be a free-for-all. And there was going to be all the, the drawing down of the support for farmers. And there was considerable concern about that. But what, kind of what's interesting at that, in that era for anyone here who works for the Food Aid Bureau, we think that PL 480 was kind of the, the principal legislation that gets PL 480 Title II, Title I, and other titles going. Not so. And two years early, the Mutual Security Act of 1952 starts the program. It starts the program to generate local currency from the sale of these surpluses of food that were emerging out of the Korean War. We didn't have anything to do with domestic lien prices going down. So it was decided that, why not finance some of our military costs overseas, housing for our our military troops in various places and other local costs by selling our food and taking the local currency for that. And that was two years before. P- In fact, PO480 was basically an add-on to that. And uh, several congressmen from farm states saying, this is really a good idea, and we're able to, let's sell more. And so we're going to have another law that will add more. and." Secretary Benson over in agriculture saying, wait a minute, that would come out of my budget. MSA comes out of defense budget. So I'm going to have to buy food that we're going to sell for foreign currencies? What am I going to do with that in the US? But it passed, because Eisenhower was in favor of it, and there were some very strong congressmen from farm states. So you can think the Mutual Security Act of 1952 as the predecessor, or the beginning of the U.S. present US foreign aid, uh, food aid program.
2: Right, and the beginning of this long process of using food as it, literally money to be able to do other things, to support development in some cases, to support military action, to even, in the case of Thailand, as I oh, recall, Thailand, yeah. to purchase guns for Thailand, the government of Thailand, so that the government could then do more things militarily. I mean, this is tangled. Oh, there's, there's this a, is a tangled web here. Well,
1: I didn't know. A few of you are my age here, Roger, thank you, I'm glad you're here. Um, (laughs) (laughs) What was happening is that Congress and the the United States, I was in the March on the Pentagon, by the way, if you remember that era when when the anti-Vietnam people, students, were marching on the Pentagon trying to levitate it, and I was in that crowd. But at any rate, during those days, everyone in America was trying to get out of the Vietnam War. They didn't want to go fight. They were burning draft cards. And so all of that was going on. And Congress was passing increasingly restrictive legislation about what parts of the budget could be used to support the war in Vietnam. And they were really constricting development aid. But they didn't constrict food aid. I'm not exactly sure why. They didn't think of it, I guess. So Henry Kissinger determined that there was a way to use Title I, not rice, because Thailand grew all of its own rice, but other things, tobacco, tallow, who knows what. and We're going to sell that to Thailand for local Thai bot that we could then use to support the Thai military that was operating in Laos. <laughs> and I, I'm, I'm sorry, in Cambodia. And the Thais are saying, what? I don't even understand what you're trying for us to do. You're going to sell us things we don't need to generate our local currency, to fight a battle in La- and in Cambodia. When, If you look at the map, we're more worried about Laos. I mean, that's on a more direct line between North Vietnam and and, and Thailand. But we pushed it through anyway. And there is an amazing, I, I do a big story of when the Thai government brought in our poor ambassador for a very heated discussion about, and to make things worse, the Thai said, look, why don't you give, why don't you why, do it another way? G- give the money to somewhere else. We don't need it. But we forced them. We forced them to take this. And it went. the end of that is that instead of making a friend in Thailand, uh, we made, if not an enemy, somebody that wasn't as friendly. And the, the worst part of it is that at the same time, we were negotiating a huge rice deal with Indonesia a major buyer of Thai rice and cutting off Thai exports to Indonesia because we were going to give Indonesia uh, PL 480 title one because we were so happy that Suharto had replaced Sukarno we, we were much more supportive of, of, of that new military regime in Thailand in Indonesia much to the economic detriment of poor Thailand we were putting Thai farmers out of business because we were taking away their market in Indonesia. At the same time, we're selling them tallow and tobacco, and I don't remember what else, so that they would have more money to fight in Cambodia. Now, you talk about that as a foreign, uh, as a foreign policy position. And Kissinger was the man behind all of this because he couldn't get money any, anywhere else that he could figure out. Two years later, Congress figured out how to cut that off, too. But it took two years.
2: Let's jump ahead. Let me ask two more questions to Barry, and then then bring you guys into the conversation. Chapter 20,
1: Uh, which is
2: toward the end, is kind of moving into the contemporary era. And you basically have a number of tables and graphs which show the consistent decline in support, financial support and in terms of tonnage, of the US for food assistance globally. That's just to really. Since 1960, it's kind of gone down
1: gently down. Well, gently down. There later sixties. Later sixties. There, there was a peak in
2: 1998 that it kind of jumped up. That's
1: Russia carried that, uh, on down yeah, right. That's right.
2: But the yeah 1988 was kind of the really steep steady decline. Yeah. But how, when you look at that and you look at all of the assistance that was put in in World War II, for example, during that World War II era when American families were put on rationing and asked to grow their own food so that enough food could be liberated in in order to to feed our allies in Europe. And people did that, they put up with that. And now the budgetary conversations, maybe post-Kissinger, have become so convoluted. And people are saying, no, food aid is not really that kind of a priority anymore? Do you think that that's just because the reality of the world has changed and we've had the green revolution, and so maybe there isn't as much need for food, or as Kimberly so has pointed out, we have a number of famines going on. Not that so are much Going that. underfunded. What's the deal?
1: During this period, if you look at that chart on Title
0: mm-hmm.
1: One, down like that. Why did Title One go down? Because our commercial exports are going up like that. Right. Here, if, uh, there's a graph in there where I show commercial exports literally on, on that line, food aid flat, like down here. At the very beginning, food aid was maybe 30 40% of our total food exports back in the 50s, before Kennedy. But shortly after the Russian wheat deal that I talk about there in 72, our, our commercial exports go up like that. Well, the support for food aid goes down at about the like ratio. We, we don't need it as much to keep exports up. And that, I think, is probably more important. We decided we, didn't, we couldn't use... If you know the, I, the concept, Section 416B, that's an even earlier uh, legislation from 1949 where if we had lots of excess food, the NGOs could come to USDA and get dollops of food for their programs overseas. And we used Section 416B. Well, even when I, in the year or two, I was in the Food Aid Bureau in the middle 80s. We still had a large
2: 416.
1: I was in Mali. We used 416B. Yeah. 416B was good when there was lots of food. It was terrible because it was an on-again, off-again thing. So if you use that for school feeding, you get to feed the the kids in every odd-numbered year, and you don't have food for them in the even. Uh, not a very good program for that kind of thing. And that was out, too. And, and other titles. Uh, At some point, we shifted a a very good school feeding program for political reasons over to USDA. Uh, In the 80s, we had, uh, during the Reagan administration, we could use monetized food for local uh, agricultural development, but that was also under USDA, even though AID had plenty of expertise in both of these reasons. And so we had to develop a new bureaucracy over in USDA to, to cover these areas. Lots of things were happening that were impacting the PL 480 availability, Title II, we tried in the 1990 Farm Bill. I don't. You were were Title
2: II, the major humanitarian.
1: Title II, yeah. I I talk like people every every here know. Everybody knows food aid, and and I'm sorry I do that. And you can ask in the questions later what I was talking about. Uh, But the the issue in the 1990 Farm Bill was to link food aid to a food security agenda. Um, we, I told you this morning, I told somebody this morning that in 1990 we were meeting in the hallway of the Food Aid Bureau, Owen Silke, John O'Rourke, uh, Jerry Manarella, and myself, and we are trying to figure out how AID could make an input into making food aid more developmental. That's what we were saying, more developmental. And somebody in our four, four people group said, why don't we tie it to food security, whatever that is? Honestly, food security was such a new concept in those days, at least in our group, that we honestly didn't know exactly. We, we knew it was getting gaining currency, and so we had to go run out and figure out how to do that, and and particularly Owen Silkey. I don't know if any of you know Owen, but he, he's a good fellow. He figured out a way to do these surveys around the country. We had four of them all over the United States, bringing farmers and interest groups and shippers if they were willing to come. WFP was represented. To, The idea of why can't we have developmental food aid tied to a food security objective? And Walter Bollinger, who was the deputy in the Food Aid Bureau, my immediate superior, said, don't do that. You're going to screw up everything. We're going to rock the boat and we'll lose what we've got. We did it anyway because Owen replaced Walter. (laughs) (laughs) Nobody that we met anywhere in the world had any objection whatsoever to tying food aid to food security. So we met with people on the Hill. It was Senate Agriculture Committee, Leahy's Leahy's crowd. And they said, what a great idea. We're ready to do that. PPC reluctantly came on board only because it wasn't their idea in the first place. And and they then tried to claim it was their idea. I wasn't in
2: PPC at the time, so you all know.
1: (laughs) Uh, They tried to claim later it was their idea. But But at any rate, so we we succeeded. Uh, The bill was passed. Food security became the top priority for all food aid, Title I, Title II, anything else. And we proceeded at that point to try to do it. Well, we didn't do it very well. It it didn't work very well after that to try to get food aid tied to food security. And why was that? Emergency needs started to grow like this. Food that was available for development programs. We had tried it every way possible to, to tie it, to put a protection around it, a lockbox around it, so that it couldn't be used for emergencies. And if you needed food for emergencies, well, you go get a supplemental, or you use the, the wheat reserve that was set up under Jimmy Carter. That's what it was for, the later called the, the uh, Bill, Emerson Bill Emerson Humanitarian, Humanitarian Trust. Trust. But quit taking our development, because if you let our development food aid continue, we'll probably have less people needing food aid in a few years. But it failed. It, it failed. And, and right now is a perfect example of that, which is, which is the reason, getting back to your question, why each and every year the tonnages of food aid go. Title I is gone, 416 Sixteen's gone, Title II is going down, not in budget terms, it's kind of flatlined with occasional little bump up, but because the cost of food has gone up from $120, $1.20 a bushel. To four and five dollars a bushel, which is where it is now. Frankly, mm-hmm. you just can buy less, and Congress is not about to tie the budget for food aid to come out to the cost of commodities. They just give you a dollar budget, and you can do with it as you see fit. Which that's the reason for those slop- sloping down lines. Which brings us to a food aid program now that's almost marginal. And we, as you all know better, as as well as I, maybe better, we have a whole bunch of needs for emergency food aid. And we have some good development food aid programs that I wish we had been able to keep going. And we're not able to do that.
2: And the the proposal, the budget proposal for 2018 actually zeroed out the
1: USDA. Oh, those nuns. The, those nuns. the, oh, so, they school,
2: the school feeding program.
1: Oh, they, hear. I, no they one heard on from Congress believes that it's going they, they, to be. They, they heard from somebody that, oh, food aid doesn't work very well, let's just zero it out. Yeah. So, that's bit,
2: this is the question about are we in fact learning these lessons of experience? Is there enough discussion of these historical lessons to kind of say, well, you know, we tried that one before and it didn't work all that great, or we tried it and it was actually helpful in these areas? Do you think that Congress, and you're listening to all these, these hearings that you listen to, yeah. um, are you hearing that people are, are taking these? lessons of history from Leahy's staff, wherever, what, uh, and putting him into the current debate?
1: Uh, a few. What we've always had in Congress, at least we did for a long time, we had, we had heroes of food aid. It goes back to Hubert Humphrey, who really felt strongly and was able to convince felt. We had several over the years in the House. We don't have any heroes of food aid in Congress now, except possibly Corker. And his interest in food aid is more in making it more efficient cost wise, because with all these barnacles that are attached to food aid, you know, 50% on US bottoms, there used to be something called the Great Lakes Set Aside, and there used to be, in fact, uh, the, um, uh, the shipping requirements used to be 75% of food aid had to be shipped on US bottoms. And as you may know, if you've ever listened to Chris Barrett on this, Most of those shipping companies are not American-owned. They are foreign-owned. The unions that staff these ships are Americans, and they're the ones with the strongest voice. The number of ships involved is very small. They're very old. They're very inefficient. The argument that they're going to be needed if we ever need a ready reserve of of, uh, commodity shipping uh, vessels available for some military catastrophe, I can assure you that USDA is not planning on using those ships. And the arguments are clear, but certain congressmen are keyed to listening to the message from these these three or four shipping companies that keep convincing them to keep this 50% shipping of all food aid on American flagged vessels. It's absurd. It's really... And I'm sure three-quarters of Congress know it's absurd. Well, I shouldn't say that. Three-quarters of the Congress that have any knowledge at all about shipping costs, <laughs> no, which please. is those six guys. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it, let me just mention one thing, and I, I, we may be going too, too far, but one of the really wonderful characters in the history of food aid is Secretary of State Dean Acheson. Because he got into all this kind of thing, and he, after he retired, he wrote a cute little book. I don't have the title, but it's in the bibliography. What's the matter with Congress you know, after all those years <laughs> of having to deal with Congress? Uh, he was you know, Assistant Secretary for Congressional Relations and, and made good friends and drank whatever it was, soda and branch water and, and after hours and shirt sleeves and told them stories about all that goes on in the rest of the world. And he, needed, he was really good at that. And we don't have any more Dean Atchison's anymore. Is there anyone in the State Department that knows how to do that? Is there anyone in Congress that'd be receptive? It's a different world. And that kind of brings up, I don't know if you're getting to your last question, but I have a last point to make. Sure, go
2: ahead. Uh, I have lots more questions, but I'm going to open it No, up no, I'm not floor. trying to
1: cut you off. No, no, I, no. I'm enjoying this. But if there's anything that comes out of this book, it's that uneas- uneasy benevolence part, which was to have been the original title. Because there is something, I think, that maybe all human beings in the world have, and it's a kind of sense of sympathy when they see other people that are in distress, their own children, their parents, people in the community, the village. And back in 1759, Adam Smith wrote a book which he considered vastly superior to wealth of nations, and it's called The Theory of Moral Sentiments. You can read it. You can download it for free. And in that book, he talks about what he sees, and he was an observer of human beings. That's that's who Adams, theory of moral the, the Theory of, of uh, moral, sentiments. moral Sentiments, it was his first book, and basically the theme is that the more you know of the suffering of others, the more attuned you are to that, the more you feel it, he uses an example of somebody on the rack, you know, being torn apart, and how, you, the, the worse it is, the more you feel it. And he's, he finds this sentiment in all the people that he's aware of in, in Scotland. And he and so he writes about it. It's the first two chapters of this book. And it is known that the people who wrote our Constitution, our Founding Fathers, that was a favorite book of theirs. 1759 it was written. And over the intervening years, as they went to Harvard or wherever, that, that was one of the books that was available. And this whole idea that there is something in human beings that you can call sympathy and herbert hoover was fantastic at bringing that out that's what his publicity people did all the time and i and and I, I have a little quote from of all places the tombstone arizona epitaph their newspaper in 1914 and it's a planted article by by the commission on relief in belgium hoover's group and they planted it and, and it It just brings out the sympathy for the poor, starving Belgian children, and they're going to face a Christmas with no food. And and the upwelling of support from America in terms of packages that were sent through the post office. Uh, The price of the postage reimbursed to them by the post office for sending these contributions to Belgium. All of that was this idea that Americans are very sympathetic, that they have this feeling. as we come forward in time, you see it again, but a little bit less so after World War II and our support. It was grudging, but it still came out. After World War I, it was not grudging. Millions of people signed up. It was an amazing thing. And then we look today. Where do we see that sentiment? I find it difficult, and I worry in this book that maybe we're a different people, a different race. Maybe human beings themselves are not as sympathetic to the suffering of others. And I told Emmy the other day, a a good way to test it in yourself, in the Ethiopia famine of 1984, the world became aware of it through a British um, reporter and a Kenyan photographer that traveled in the Wolo region of Ethiopia and filmed in a little town called Korom, babies dying before the camera. these fields, forty and fifty thousand people of people uh, of individuals with no hope of food that were're literally starving to death, that seven and a half minute program that aired on BBC at that point brought such an outpouring it, uh, it, it's never been duplicated of money of people calling that night, the next night. And I had to take it out of the book. I was getting too long. But uh, the Brokaw program, Nightly News on uh, NBC, their staff in London wanted to send them the video so we could play it on American television. And the initial reaction was, we've had too many stories about Africa. We're not going to carry that. Well, the people in London sent it anyway, because they were in tears. And when Brokaw and his group saw these things coming across, the unedited version, Well, they put a 10-minute segment in that night. And the outpouring of sentiment from the American community to CRS, Save the Children, Care, tens of thousands of telephone calls in the first couple of hours. And that then built up to millions and millions and millions of dollars of contributions for the Ethiopia famine. The result of that seven-and-a-half-minute video If you want to write this down, I'll tell you how you can see that video today and then see how you react to it based on all that's happened in the intervening years. If you do a search on 1984, BBC, Ethiopia famine, you'll see uh, several YouTubes available. It's probably the first one. It's exactly 7 minutes and 39 seconds long. Watch it and see how you react now versus all that you've seen in the intervening years. Then it brought, there was a worldwide, I mean, you had these concerts, and millions and millions, hundreds of millions were contributed for Ethiopia. So I wonder if, if in fact, we've become too hardened to this kind of thing. I don't know, Too but hardened
2: it, or too professionalized? That now we just say, well, it's up to WFP, it's up to Food for Peace, it's up to OFTA, they should take care of it we as individuals we don't have to be concerned.
1: well, it becomes tokenism in a way we, we, we give a little we give our ten dollars we right. gave it the church but right. that's not what 's needed what's needed is years' worth of contribution what 's needed is support for a government program support for the world food program that continues mm-hmm. so that, that's one of the that's a theme of this book i don 't know if it comes through, but I intended it for it too
2: yeah the theme I think of, of sort of how how various in various crisis situations the sympathy of, of people was really mobilized yeah, as, quickly as part of the response and but also recognizing the limits of the resources that were available and people as you say were very clever so, you know leaders like Herbert Hoover even Humphrey even Kennedy were they were really good at kind of getting the story out there so that there, was, there were resources available. But I don't know, today, I mean, I go to meetings, I'm sure several of you here do as well, in which the World Food Program and UN OCHA, you know, are coming up and saying, you know, the appeal is for ten billion dollars, and we barely have five. Three, five.
1: We yeah. barely I, have barely three or Go into that a little bit. Here. And
2: every night we watch BBC now, and the poor kids in Yemen are dying of cholera because their their nutritional status is so poor that the cholera wipes them out. And,
1: and I fear it's going to get worse.
2: And so I think we're really very much at a point where the kind of stories that you tell here. Actually, I'm, I'm not trying to flatter you or anything, but I think the kind of stories that you're telling convince them to buy the book. Our stories—they already did outside.
1: No,
2: <laughs> okay, um, but but it, the time right now, I think we're at a point where that sort of maybe that sort of immediacy of sympathy has, in fact, kind of diminished. That it's we become overwhelmed and. Yeah. Somebody uses the term donor fatigue that we, you know, that, oh my God, not another crisis. One of my favorite food aid terms is chronic emergency. Yeah. That's yeah. one of my very favorite. Because I think that, in many ways, kind of epitomizes what many people feel oh my gosh, we have an emergency and it's chronic. So, meaning that there's nothing we, or little we can do about it. But I think you come up with kind of a, a, set, of, a set of sort of rep- repetitions. You know, that these things don't go away. It's part of the human condition. Climate change, the floods, the droughts, these things are going to happen again. And so kind of looking at how they were handled, where missteps were made, I think is is really enormous, can, could be enormously
1: helpful. I make the point, back in the Hoover chapter, that never before and never again was Food Aid run more like a business. He did it with a very small staff. He cajoled them to be volunteers. They stayed volunteers for the whole length of World War I. And he brought in kind of business executives that maybe were retired or they were interested. And he kept them so interested that they stayed on the job. And it, it, from time to time, I think, golly, what if Food Aid were not run as part of USAID, but were run as an outside organization comprised of people we used to call the Ponch Corps? but who are really into railroads and steamships and transport and how to keep prices low, but were motivated by the ultimate objective. And it's kind of an idea we're thinking about. It certainly go over well among some in Congress. And I think there would be volunteers willing to do that. You
2: and I can have a discussion of that over wine. Yeah. <laughs> let's, let's invite other folks here to join in the conversation. Dan, introduce yourself, and then ask your question. Start with Dan, and then you.
1: Hi, thank you. My name is Dan Silverstein. I'm a private sector strategic advisor, and I have a comment and a question. With regard to your uh, wonderment over whether we've changed as a culture, I would point out to you that in 2012, Ron Paul ran for president, and during one of the debates, he was asked if he would allow someone uh, at the doorstep of an emergency room to die because they didn't have life uh, didn't have health insurance and he said yes and the crowd applauded Yeah, I know. Okay? Yeah uh, My question to you is did Hoover run for president uh, riding on a bag of food aid? No, not at all he, 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 His name was in the consciousness of the country because of all he had done after food aid he became Secretary of Commerce under Harding, and then continued um, to be engaged in the private sector, but not just in food aid. He, he was a known conservative, wealthy businessman who felt that the government role ought to be limited. In times of emergency, it ought to be given all the power necessary. But as you know about Hoover, he wasn't particularly interested in, in government organizations. He'd prefer to have fewer. But his name was out there. I don't have the poem. I can't, don't have it in my mind. But when he was um, US food administrator, he controlled not only food aid abroad, but he was in charge of it, all food decisions inside the United States, because we were having to limit amounts of food. <laughs> it, it was very interesting how all that happened. But nonetheless, so his name was bandied about in many other ways. And he was a good speaker and a good writer. So, it, Food Aid got his name into the headlines, but it's, he didn't run on that at all.
2: Hmm. Yes. Oh, yes. Hi, my name is Gretchen Bloom. I both worked at USAID as a gender advisor and also at the World Food Program for five years as a senior gender advisor, and I know both of you.
0: Um, I'm involved here a bit with WFP USA, and there was a res- presentation recently of the McGovern Dole Awards to K- Senators Casey and Moran for their support for ending hunger. So there seems to be a bipartisan support on the Hill, at least according to WFP USA. Mm-hmm. But I'm also, that's a comment, but I'm also wondering if you believe that's the case. And what happens now that the shift is more toward vouchers and cash, which is a lot easier to ship, than the actual commodities? Uh, what does that do to the Farm Bill? There's been
1: a, uh, well, uh, I'll go into that a little bit. Sure. Because it's so, it's so much fun. Um, There has long since been an understanding that it's a heck of a lot cheaper and faster to provide food that's locally purchased or purchased in neighboring countries, and plus it's, it's more desirable to the recipients. USDA has been adamantly opposed to that, as you can well imagine. And anything on the in the farm bill, they were they were not willing to do it. I I won't go into all the details of what President Bush tried to do, and he largely failed. But so the idea was to move it move the purchase of, uh, of uh, the, or, or the use of vouchers and credit of various sorts away from agriculture and into the foreign Affairs group in in the foreign assistance Act and in the Global food security Act that was in fact done that food for that type of I'm Cash uh, budget resources are now exist in the Farm Bill, a fairly large amount, which meant that after years of being the only major uh, food aid provider that was still providing tied, tied commodities from the home country, I think about half or so, maybe slightly less than half of our food aid is now purchased locally or used in the form of credit and vouchers, all in that part of the US budget that is most subject to. To cutting
2: the foreign assistance budget. The
1: foreign assistance budget. See, that's the danger of doing that. Everybody is happy. Uh, Corker and the sponsors of that bill—not Corker, but those who did sponsor it—were very happy that we could save a lot of money, enormous, millions and millions of dollars, doing it that way. But it's in a more vulnerable part of the budget when budget cutters are at work. Food aid has been always somewhat protected from that because. USDA, the farming community, the, the food purchasers and stores and shippers were always supportive and still are supportive. So they actually divided it. And I, have, I even cited the actual legislation here because in order to get the Global Food Security Act passed, there is wording in there saying this has nothing, no impact, nothing will go wrong with the farm bill. It's, it's going to stay intact. Title I is going to, Title II is going to stay intact. All of the pieces that are fund, of food aid funded out of the Farm Bill are untouched. That's the only reason that, that, that legislation passed.
2: And that discussion is going to be on the table again oh, yeah, in the next three or four it, months.
1: You need more money next year. And, you, and the yeah. Global
2: Food Security Act needs to be reauthorized or extended. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. And so this discussion is really a very timely discussion. And the question, I think, of budgetary vulnerability yeah. Is there one of the questions that comes up on the farm bill side, though, Barry, is that food aid, commodity food aid now, accounts for somewhat less than one percent of American agricultural exports. I mean, it's nothing.
1: I have a figure of zero point three percent, though. Yeah, that,
2: something like that. Yeah, and so farmers, farm organizations, make a big point about you know the generosity of American farmers and American excellence of supply. But in fact, most farmers, when you talk directly to them and say, you know, does it matter to you if you know this continues as an outlet for American production? And they are well, that, well, not really.
1: It, if you know your farming groups, that would be a Farm Bureau position because they represent right. the big farmers. There are other farmers groups that, that represent smaller farmers they kind of feel pride, or have always felt pride, that at least some of their, their efforts were going to feed the hungry of the world. What, how big that is now compared to what it was in the past, I don't know.
2: Oh, the, in my experience, the American farmers still, still do feel and are very proud of feeding the world, but they do it through the market.
1: Yeah. And the, you
2: know, and they know their market. As long as
1: the rest of the world can pay for it, that's quite yeah. wonderful.
2: But that issue, I think, that we, you know, this one, it's in the last chapter, this discussion of where we are right now. I mean, you obviously had to stop (laughs) writing at some point and get it to the publisher. Had to
1: compress it. Yeah,
2: and get it to the publisher. But I think that's going to be something which is kind of like the next chapter that we're going to be watching.
0: But Kimberly. Thanks, Barry. This is fascinating. I want you to stay all night, but I understand you can't. Um, I have two questions. One is, Although they may not be in the room, but a lot of people who watch our webcast are Hill staffers. Mm. And you know, I've met with some of them even this week. And so think about if you're a young Hill staffer and you have your member that suddenly needs to know everything that they need to know about food aid because the farm bill's coming up. They're not going to read your book because they're not. What? I know. It's shocking. <laughs> we will. This we room you will have some coffee, readers, actually. right? But. But if you had to give them advice, right, with their limited amount of time and maybe a limited amount of knowledge and experiences, what's the one area that you would tell them as far as advice to beef up, right, as far as what they should learn? And is there any particular programs from looking back at our history that you would encourage them to consider bringing back? And then my last question, which is easy, is where can you get your book? Especially for those watching online here, we have some you can buy in the back at a discounted price. But for those watching, you where can a, they get a book?
1: If you do a search on the title of the book, you'll come up with more places selling that book than I even knew existed. <laughs> Many of them in languages. I don't even understand the language. But you can certainly get it on Amazon. You can get it directly from the publisher, um, the, the, normal, the normal places. With regard to Hills. Can,
2: can I just interject? He said that it used to be called an uneasy benevolence. But then the people said, no one is ever going to search on Google for an uneasy benevolence. But a political history of American food aid? Oh, yeah, they, that might do it. I so think that, it
1: makes for a more boring title that way. But I was forced to, to <laughs> agree anyhow, with sorry, people who know more than I did. <laughs> um, in the years past, I dealt with staffers uh, who were extremely knowledgeable about food aid, and I hope there are still some there who are. And I would highly recommend that they focus, one, on trying to get as much emergency food to WFP as they possibly can. In my experience, and I've done a lot of consulting for WFP over the years. Gretchen may remember my appearing from time to time. Um, they are a crackerjack outfit, and, and they, they are very efficient, and they're very good at getting it there. I would avoid what many of them think is a good idea, which is to preposition US food overseas so that it speeds up the process. That's incredibly costly. And the way the law works now, preposition food overseas, we have to use non US carriers, because it's all, except for some of it's prepositioned in the US, but it's prepositioned overseas. But the law requires. We have to make up for that by using more U.S. carriers to bring food from the United States. So that adds to the cost. So I don't know. I, I, if they could somehow get Congress to agree to use more of the Farm Bill food for, uh, funding for purchase overseas as a great savings, I would be very much in favor of that. Also How to... What would
0: you like to see? Sorry?
1: Well, um, I, I, out of the farm bill, I would like it to go to what Bush asked for, which was a quarter, at least. I mean, he got this little token of fifteen million dollars a year for four years, but he was asking for about half a billion, and that's—I forget—I worked out it the percentages. 20, it,
2: that's right, because it, when in I was at USAID then in the food aid, the U.S. aid food aid Title II budget. Not Title I, not my government but Title II was about $2 billion, $1.8 to $2 billion
1: we have up and down. S-
2: and, and Andrew Nazi also asked for a quarter, the
1: general, uh, President yep. Bush. Yep, and it would have made sense. We're facing not only a difficult emergency problem in several countries that's going to continue for some time, and we're falling far short of the food that's needed in those areas. The world food program is falling. In some places, they're getting 50% of what they need, or 40%. Well, is, is it now the U.S. position that we're going to let people starve? Are we just going to ignore that? We've never done that in the past, though we haven't done a particularly good job at preventing it sometimes, as in 1973, '74. But is that going to be the position of our government, that we just simply can't care because it's too expensive? Think of all the uses of our U.S. government budget now, which are probably wasted, which are probably politically motivated do we not have that sympathetic edge in the among Americans that would make our contribution sufficient to keep those people alive and to further if they could do it to continue to provide assistance for what wp calls protracted emergency assistance the, and and the the kind of the the resurrection after the relief the getting people back where they can where the uh, military the conflict situation allows for them to be productive again that's going that's kind of problem is going to continue and I didn't go into it and I'm not going to go into it because it takes a lot of time what I think is going to be happening in the future with the with the threat to production in many of the countries that we're dealing with now coming from global climate change um, i I predict in the last few pages something that I had intended to write a lot about, that I am going to write a lot about in the next book, that if we think we're in crisis mode now with conflict situations, you can double or triple that in terms of crisis mode with regard to fall off in yields in the tropics caused by a a 2.5 or 3 degree increase during the growing season, 3 degrees Celsius, for all their major rain-fed cereal crops. You're looking at 30 40% fall-off like that, rapid fall-off in maize production, if average growing season temperature is up another two and a half, three 3 degrees Celsius. And that's likely to happen, the way things are going now. I, 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 I think Congress ought to be aware of that. The climate naysayers ought to be tarred and feathered and shipped out of town. Not, not. Hello? Um, because that's truly... I, I work in a group at Stanford that is focused like laser beams on these problems in the oceans, on land, uh, the, the growing problem of methane, um, what happens to the soils when they... this. I didn't even know this until a few months ago, that the top six inches of the soil, when it's warmed another two or three degrees, the amount of CO2 release dwarfs everything that human beings relieve. Really. And most people are not aware of this. Um, uh, I was telling somebody today that there's recent research that combines thousands of reports about the health of oceans that we may have lost as many as 50% of our fish population in all oceans combined since 1970. And that can go on and on. I don't want to bore you with all this stuff, but I look at it.
2: Two years um, for the next book, or six?
1: It's going into the next book how long it takes. It's a lot of of research. But somebody's got to bring it all together. And when you do, at least in my mind and among my colleagues, we're scared to death about what it's going to mean for food and for enough to eat. In a a lot of the poorer parts of the world, I know what it's going to do for prices. I'll get off my...
2: Who else? Yeah, he's on a horse. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Other questions, other comments here? Because I have another question about um, about sort of again where we are and looking forward, looking forward to where we're going, um, which is the the reluctance to and it sort of goes back to Dan's point about in, about health insurance, is that many people have said in the food, in the food and agriculture word, world, prevention is worth a pound of cure. Yeah. That you, As you talked about developmental food aid and food security, I think that was the hope. Yep. That by investing, enabling people in the short term to be better fed, to be more productive, to have a reliable source of food, right, um, would in fact make enable them to be more productive in actually producing their own food and kind of growing out of totally a, agree. quote, subsistence cycle. Yep. But that conversation about you know, investing in prevention, even though it's you know, investing in better nutrition leads to people who have better earning capacity, who have better health status, we all know that. But as you read the story, do you, that it seems one of the lessons that everybody wants to avoid. The emergency, yes, that's a good idea, to address emergency. The only single exception in your book is John Kennedy, John F. Kennedy, Mm -hmm. who basically went almost all the way over to the other side. And he said, food is the development resource. And food should be the core of the development resource. And he was the only one, as I recall.
1: It came out of the mouth of Kennedy, but it came out of the mind of Humphrey. You recall, Humphrey and Kennedy were senators together. And Humphrey was a couple of years ahead in this thinking. And Kennedy sitting there listening to his friend and colleague,
0: uh-huh. I think,
1: I think it, it captured his emotional, his idealism. And the funny thing about Kennedy, unlike all presidents, I think, that have ever run for the office, he was talking food aid as part of his stump speeches and a year before he ran for president. He would meet with farmers groups and talk about what became Food for Peace. Uh, I, don't, I don't know of any other uh, president of the United States. And he really meant it. I mean, he physically or emotionally was engaged with the idea that food could be a much more important development resource than it, than it is. We also talked, by the way, about adaptation. We talked prevention and, and, and resilience. But even now, the whole idea that it's almost too late to be able to turn around what's happening in climate change, particularly. And now, more and more, the emphasis is on how do we adapt. How do we adapt technically with our crops? What can we do so that wheat and rice, well, rice is not so much a problem, but wheat and corn, some of the other uh, coarse grains, can survive hotter temperatures, one. Or how you can grow more and more things in kind of salty water. or. The water that is increasingly the only water available for people trying to grow crops where salt water has. And the Dutch are making fantastic advances. They're growing carrots in seawater almost now. And so, all this kind of research that gives one hope that there may still be technological fixes that can get us enough high quality, nutritionally mm-hmm. useful food, even under hotter growing conditions, is. Many of the people I work with are kind of in, in that area, so it's, it's both prevention and it is adaptation to something that appears almost surely to be coming.
2: What about the... You don't discuss this, but it's oh an issue in, in terms of the Ethiopia story. Mm. Since you were the early part of the Ethiopia story, mm. you lived there in the 1970s. I was there in the 1990s, when Mengistu was overthrown and the current government came in. And Kimberly worked in Ethiopia for USAID in the early mid, the mid 2000s,
1: right? Well, well, there's a book right there between us.
2: Exactly, exactly. And I'm sure that if we were to sit down and have this conversation and look at the ethiopia story as you tell it which is largely the 1980s story uh, yeah
1: i was talking particularly about the, the political response right and the, the political response
2: but i recall talking about political response when i at i was in ethiopia because i was working in the regional office in nairobi and the only staff in ethiopia were food aid staff
1: six people if i recall
2: yeah because and they were all located in the embassy and during the 80s All we provided in the way of of US engagement was food aid. And so when the new government came in, we said, well, now we should take the Kennedy approach here and use food aid for development, right? And invest dollars as well in getting Ethiopian agriculture back up and running. And everybody said, why would you do that? We have a peace dividend. We can save money on food aid and let the farmers produce their own food. And I think, and Kimberly will react to this story, because by the time you were there, that position had again been reversed, and people were realizing how important it was to both provide food aid as a safety net for poor people, as well as to invest in agriculture and agriculture growth. So I think that that history which I was reminded of as I read that chapter on Ethiopia yeah, and then talking with you before this this session, I think is an important part of the history how you know we we, we churn these ideas through we take the political context keeps changing a little bit, and our ideas about what we're going to do in terms of production, what our our food aid and humanitarian responsibilities are and uh, I don't know it's just to me the 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 sort of task that you took on in trying to tell these stories and tell them in a way which is complicated. That's why it's going to... If you buy the book and you read it, you can't just whiz through it, but you will enjoy it like a novel, trust me. <laughs> but it takes... But but you try to weave that, that complexity of story forward. Are you finding that other people, now that you've got it on the street, are getting back to you with with any comments saying, well, I really related, as Gretchen was saying, I related to this story, I related yeah, to that I, story? Yeah, I think
1: those comments I'm getting back, which are relatively few, are similar to yours. It, it turns out to be a more interesting story than they realized when they got their hands on Oh, and Silky went through it very carefully and kept sending uh-huh. me notes from Florida. Uh, good. Uh, yeah, and the people at Stanford that have read it, they were my peer reviewers, largely. Um, it's always been positive, because they, they like the story. They, they like the, the writing, the way I, I, I wrote it. And it was my way to kind of get them involved in something they otherwise wouldn't be th- mm-hmm. looking at at, at all.
2: Right. Yeah. Right. OK, no other questions, no other comments. Welcome to um, the political history of American food aid. It really is an uneasy benevolence. Do we want to spend more money? Do we want to do local and regional purchase? Do we want to provide safety nets? Do we want to just respond to emergencies when they happen? It's all a big political choice.
1: How do we get ready for 20 years from now? That's your next book. That's the issue. That's the issue from now on.
2: That's your next book. Good. Thank you so much for coming. It's been a terrific afternoon.